All right, good morning, everybody. Hope you slept well, rested well. Everybody good? Thank you. Got one person's good. Everybody good? Yeah. Good. All right. All right. We are going to uh, jump back into Ephesians chapter 6. If you have a copy of scriptures and you want to turn over there, we'll jump back into um, studying, thinking, praying towards uh, God's armor in our lives in the context, right, of this spiritual battle. We're saying that it's a battle that um, we cannot win in and of our own selves and of our own resources, but it's a battle that, uh, that God will not lose. And the reason that the armor is important, these are just like basics of the faith that we have to put on on a regular basis because when you find yourself in the middle of a battle, um, it's too late, right? It's too late in the middle of a battle to go looking for, for armor. That's part of the reason that Paul uses uh, this metaphor. And we find battles in our lives, uh, and they come unexpectedly, right? Um, I think about, um, we were talking to the counselors yesterday morning on Tuesday mornings um, as the speaker right here, that, that's what you do. And so Angie and I actually did that together. And when we do Q&A, whenever we're done uh, with the message of this morning, um, Angie and I will do Q&A uh, together. So we were talking to them and we mentioned the fact that we met in seminary in Memphis, uh, Tennessee. And so part of the seminary curriculum uh, at the school that we attended was that we had to do practical missions. That's what they called it. You had to do practical mission opportunities um, every week. And so you had to go out on a weekly basis and serve somewhere with a ministry in the community. And so for me, my practical mission was the Shelby County Penitentiary, right? So every week I would go, we would, uh, we would do a service for a couple of hundred inmates. Um, and uh, after the service was over, then we'd break up into small groups. And we all led small group Bible studies uh, there uh, with the folks who were incarcerated in the prison. So one week it was my turn uh, to be the speaker, uh, which was, is a great learning lab, uh, by the way. Um, so it's my turn to be the speaker, and it was a great night. The prison choir sang uh, that night, and I thought it would be a great idea to have Angie come and sing uh, that night. We were engaged at the time, and I thought, man, this is, a, this is a great opportunity for us to do ministry together. And so, like I said, everybody's already, already fired up, and uh, we I'm about ready to speak, and Angie gets up to sing, <clears throat> and uh, there were technical difficulties. The, um, well, so you got to be old enough to know this, but she had tracks on a cassette tape, right? Uh, that's what the time was, but that didn't work, so she just sang a hymn out of the hymnal, and she sang, um, the hymn was, his eye is on the sparrow, right? So do y'all, y'all know the first line of that hymn? Uh, why should I feel discouraged? Uh, why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? Now you're, you know, you're singing to guys who, you know, <clears throat> they've been there for a while, some of them. And um, it struck a chord with one of the inmates. Uh, I had never seen him before. Uh, he was on the third or fourth row. I remember he's on my right. I'm sitting behind Angie. She's singing right, right over here. And um, he was a very large man. He was 6'4", probably, 6'5". I'm going to guess 275, 280 pounds. Sleeves rolled up, uh, branded tattoos, the kinds that are raised up on his arms, beard. And he stood up out of his chair. And he pointed at Angie. And he said, sing the song, sister. Sing the song. And Angie looks back at me. And I said, please keep singing the song. <laughs> right? Because <clears throat> you're my fiance and I have to defend you, right? If something goes down here. And so we find ourselves right at moments in our lives, like spur of the moment, 
And they're not things like that. Obviously, there was no conflict uh, there, gratefully, uh, that night. But we find ourselves in spiritual battles, and they come on fast sometimes. And so that's why we have to, uh, we have to consistently be ready. So we'll jump back into the text, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the methodia. We talked about that of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm. So Paul is encouraging us in the comfort uh, of God's resources. Uh, I feel like um, C.S. Lewis uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he captures this so well in the middle of a battle scene where, um, where Peter loses uh, his weapon. And just about the time he's um, about ready to be attacked and brutally mauled, right? Aslan gives Peter his sword. And all of a sudden it's miraculous what Peter is able to accomplish. And that's the idea that Paul is trying to get across to us. It's our battles, it's our fights, but we fight with, with God's resources. And hopefully, I think from Paul's perspective, that's gonna bring us comfort, right? Um, I remember early, early on in the life of our church, um, we were trying to communicate in LifePoint Kids. Like, this is what God's what brings you comfort. When you lean into him and rely on him, that brings you, that brings you comfort. And so we just asked the kids in uh, LifePoint Kids that night, we said, well, what is it that brings you comfort? What brings you, just trying to, you know, find a way to connect. Six-year-old Joshie Parks raised his hand. Joshie, what brings you comfort? He said, Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy brings me comfort. Okay. Josh's parents were so proud, right? So, so proud. That's what we, we think. Wait, what God's word, God's uh, resources ought to, they ought to bring us comfort. Because as we fight these battles, the things we've said, the things that we think are our battles and the things that are really our battles are probably different things. Your battle's not your neighbors. Your battle's not your in-laws. Your battle's not with City Hall. Paul is trying to say there's a bigger battle that's going on. And as we learn more about the armor today, what we're going to learn is that um, your first enemy and your first ally um, are the same person. All right? So jump back into the text there. We'll start with uh, this piece of the armor in verse 14. Stand, therefore, uh, having put on the belt of truth. That's the one we've already talked about. Having put on the breastplate um, of righteousness. I'll show you a picture of a Roman, uh, of a Roman breastplate. Um, of all of the defensive pieces of armor, this one was the most critical for the long haul portion of, uh, of the battle, for the regular battle, the regular warfare that they engaged in. The breastplate, um, it would be something akin to a modern Kevlar, flak jacket, bulletproof vest, right? You're guarding uh, your torso, the vital organs, right, in your body. Because as a soldier, whenever, um, whenever you fight, right, you can take a shot to the leg and you can heal up. You can take a nick to the arm, you can heal up. If you take a wound somewhere in the area uh, where the breastplate is covering in your torso 
you're most likely not going to make it either in the short term or um, in the long term. And so it makes sense then that Paul calls us to this piece of armor, right? What are, we're covering the things that are the most intimate, right? The thing that uh, for us, maybe we would consider that heart, right? Um, from a spiritual perspective, your heart can be, it can be confused, it can be broken, it can be manipulated. And so what Paul here is calling us to is the coverage, the protection of the things that are the most core. And I think for us as believers, probably the thing maybe that is more, uh, that is more core to us than anything um, is our identity in Christ. When you accept and receive him, right, your identity changes. You move from death to life. You are a brand new creation. So what's, what's that identity? What's it, the new identity? What's it, it's, what is it compromised of? Romans chapter 8, right? We are the adopted sons and daughters of God. And to the end of Philippians chapter 2, right, that he who began a good work will complete it unto the day of Christ. So he makes you new, and then he's going to continue to form you and form you and form you throughout um, the rest of your life for what purpose? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal body. So we have a new identity um, in Christ, his sons and daughters. God is working on us. He started it. He's going to complete it so that we begin to look like Jesus until when? Until Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, until we can say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So the reality that comes alongside of my, uh, of my new identity is that I, I work and work and work in relationship with Jesus. We do what we talked about with truth. Like we read God's word and read, God, read God's word, and then we pray it back to him on a consistent basis. We allow God's word to study us as we study God's word. And then what happens is that that I might look increasingly like Jesus as I look increasingly at Jesus. So we stay in the word and we stay in the word and we stay in the word because the more we stay in the word, the more we look at Jesus, the more that we look like Jesus. So how does that happen? How does that, that transformation, how does it get, it get started? That's the, that's the next piece uh, of armor there in verse 15. And Paul says this, and as uh, shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The readiness given by the gospel of peace. Paul here says, he references as a piece of armor, the shoes. And I know for most of us, when you think about armor, when you think about soldiers, when you think about fighting, like shoes are not like the first thing that you, but this was an absolutely critical piece of their armor. I'll show you a picture here of Roman uh, cleats. Um, really, the originator uh, of these shoes uh, was Alexander the Great. Um, he changed modern warfare in that by providing his soldiers with cleats, they had traction, right? So when they fought, they wouldn't slip. When they ran, they ran faster because they had an unusual ability to grip. So what Alexander the Great changed in warfare is that he would outrun other armies. He would outflank them because he could move faster. So these cleats provided that. They provided that, uh, that agility. And so the tendency then is to read this and say, okay, well, the shoes represent peace. But that's not what the text says. The shoes represent 
the readiness, the etumasia, the nimbleness, the agility of the gospel of peace. Because whenever you and I think about peace, our tendency is to think, well, what I need is um, this, this serenity that comes from God, <clears throat> right? That's what we think peace. If I ask you to maybe visualize peace, maybe you're going to think about something maybe more along the lines of, uh, of Buddhism, uh, the Far East, somebody sitting, meditating. Like to us, we think, well, that's peace. So let's talk about three quick things. Let's talk about the myth and the truth, right? The myth and the truth. And then we'll talk thirdly about, uh, about the application uh, of, this, of this kind of peace, right? So what's the myth? The myth is that you and I think that what we need is peace from God. That's the myth. Um, whenever somebody says to you something like, um, uh, I'm reading the Bible to try and get peace from God. Typically what they mean when they say something along those lines is, uh, I'm in the middle of a crisis. It's an economic crisis. Uh, it's a relational crisis. It's in some sort of existential crisis. And I'm trying to read the Bible or I'm trying to go to church so that God will give me peace, this serenity, this, this sense of uh, maybe calm uh, in the midst of the, of the storm. That's what we mean typically whenever we say that. That's the myth. But the truth is not that we first need peace from God. Rather, we first need peace with God. So the truth is that we need peace and the peace that comes from being in alignment with God. Remember we talked about on Sunday, it's that, uh, that shmiha kind of authority, bringing our lives underneath that. Remember um, when I said to you at the beginning of the message that your first uh, foe and your first ally are the same person. We are born into this world, sinful, separated from God by our sin, and we are actually, according to Romans, we are actually enemies with God. We are opposite of him. So how do we get peace? Here's what Romans chapter 5 uh, verse 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have uh, we have peace with God. So the myth, right, is that we need peace from God to live this kind of ready, nimble, agile kind of life. But the truth is that we first need peace uh, with God, not just peace from God, um, to live this life that's ready on green light whenever these, these battles come. So what's the path? What's the path towards this peace? When we have peace with God, then what happens is we get peace from God, Right? But we first have to come through that season of gaining the readiness, the nimbleness, the agility comes from the fact that we are aligned with the gospel. He says, having your feet shod with the readiness of the gospel, the good news of peace, this idea, the gospel, that we are born into this world undeniably flawed, but at the same time, unbelievably loved. And the only thing that trumps our flaws, the only thing that changes the fact that we are flawed. The only thing that transforms us out of our flaws is the fact that we are so incredibly loved in the gospel. So Paul encourages us to understand, realize, and embrace this reality that we're born into this world as God's enemies. As much as we hate 
to hear it. And if I were to say to you, hey, you're at war with God, like when you're born into this world, you're, you'd be like, I'm at war. I mean, come on, man. I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not hostile. I'm not actually. We are. I'll give you um, just a couple of examples, a more modern example maybe, and then a more historical uh, example. Uh, I've got a friend, a uh, pastor, and I don't know, it's probably been 10 years ago uh, now. He went to a golf event, and he gets paired up with a guy. He's never met him before, but they get paired up to play with one another in this golf event. Over the first couple of holes, they're talking. They kind of, uh, you know, talk about kids and marriage, those kind of, you know, who, where are you from, all those kinds of things. And then they get to the point where they say, what, what, what do you do for a living? And when he says he's a pastor, the guy just goes cold for the next hole, hole and a half. And so they've got this long drive from, uh, from the green to the tee box on the next hole. And you know, it's gotten kind of awkward. And the guy finally says, yeah, I know, you, I know you're a pastor, but it's like, look, I, I just can't believe in a God who would allow my wife and I to miscarry a child because it's ruined our lives for the last 18 months. And it's one of those moments when you, you know, if you've had a moment like this, maybe with somebody, man, you feel the pressure, right, to provide an answer. And so my friend said, you know, I just, I just prayed. I said, God, you got to help me. And he said that he said to the he said to the guy, he said, you know, first, man, I'm sorry. He said, my wife and I have had that same, have had that same experience, and it's really, really tough. But he said, I don't think your issue, he said, if I can just say this to you, I don't think your issue is that you don't believe in God. I think your issue is you're mad at him. And the obvious point that he was making is what? How can you be mad at a God you don't believe in, Right? Why would you say you don't believe if you're, you're, you're hostile? And that really takes me to the, the historical example. America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, wrote a book one time, The Natural Man, Angry at God. And here's what, um, here's what Edwards uh, says um, in, the, uh, in the book. He says, the anger that we have towards God sleeps deep. So what is incumbent upon you and me, what we need to do, what we have to do is we have to identify this hostility. And in a weird way, we have to, we have to embrace that. This idea that we are at odds with God when we are born into this world because what that requires of us then is to humble ourselves to come to God. And the reason that's important is because it puts us on equal footing with everybody else. And so this whole idea of comparing ourselves and better than and more religious than, and it's all of that is wiped away because all of us are born into this world under the same condition and it takes the same reality to provide salvation for all of us. You think about, um, <clears throat> I, I thought about ambush uh, this morning. Right, going to serve uh, on the jury. If you were here last night, you heard about that. Like he got called and jury summons. And so the, the question for us is not so much um, how mad are we at God, but is God mad at us? Like that's probably the more important question. And I was thinking about ambush and I was thinking about, you know, 
he's going to go sit on this jury, and I have no idea what the case is about. Let's say it's um, Grand Theft Auto. Okay, so let's say the, the person's being accused of stealing a vehicle. Is, is, is Ambush mad at the guy? No. It's not personal to him. It's institutional, right? The state of Michigan demands a debt from this guy or gal for stealing a vehicle. And God's anger towards us is like that. It's not necessarily personal, but it is institutional. His wrath is stored up against sin of which we are born into and into this world. But instead of us receiving and taking the wrath of God, this is where the judge gets off the bench and comes down to where the accused sits. And the free becomes guilty so that the guilty can go free. He takes our penalty and our payment. And it's the same payment that's required for all of us. So none of us is better than any of us. And that sets us up for an understanding about the foundation of our identity. And again, I don't think um, in modern terms, um, anyone more so than, than Lewis has captured this in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you saw the, the movie that came out some probably almost 15 years ago now, the scene where Aslan, the lion figure, offers himself up not just to be sacrificed, but to be humiliated in the midst of sacrifice. We come to understand just a little bit, just a little bit of the humility uh, of Christ. And so I'm grateful for the team back here. They've actually teed up that scene uh, in the movie. So take just a second uh, and watch it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this present darkness. I'm going to say it to you again. Your problem is not your neighbors. Your problem is not your spouse. Your problem is not your in-laws. There is a spiritual battle. And that is a smidgen, just a small, that's a human peak at what happened. As much as we can understand when Jesus was on the cross, where the enemy thought, the enemy thought that he had won. And in actuality, he was only executing victory. Because three days later, our Savior was resurrected out of the tomb to defeat death, hell, and the grave. And you and I can bring our lives under the authority of a weak, strong Savior. And it helps us. It helps us to put this armor on. 
It helps us as we look at our lives and we, instead of looking at our lives in an arrogant, prideful way, we don't look at our lives and say, man, why are all these bad things happening to me? Do tough things happen to us? Absolutely. Are they painful? Yes. Difficult to go through? Yes. But we don't take that lens because we understand that Jesus humbled himself for us and we humble ourselves as we come to him. And then we can look at our lives differently because our identity is not rooted in our performance. Our identity is not rooted in what we can do or what we can provide or what we can give or how other people see us or how we can even please other people. But our identity is rooted not in what we do, but what, in he, what he has already done. And when we root our identity there, then we look at our lives and we don't say, why did so many bad things, why did these bad things happen to me? We actually root our lives and we look at our lives and we're like, why don't more bad things happen to me? Look at all these blessings. Look at all these things that God has given me that I don't deserve. Rather, these wonderful things that for a time and for a season, he has provided to us. That's the battle. Your identity, my identity, that's the battle. But hallelujah, we had a savior who refused to leave us in our sins. He said it himself, aren't you grateful that he came to seek and to save the lost? Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for your humility, for this battle, God, that you have fought for us and fought in our place. Moments, God, just like this this morning where we focus back in on the humility, God, that you uh, showed us on the cross. You didn't just tell us that you loved us, but you displayed it on full display. And then in power you were raised. And someday in ultimate power, you will return. And you will establish a kingdom the way that it's supposed to be. God, we pray for, we pray towards, we look for that day. Today, our hearts are guarded. Our shoes are on. And we are ready for whatever the day brings. It's in your name we pray, amen.